Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Well, hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with PSB Research. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week, we bring you the polls driving the news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So today is a very special episode of The Pollsters for a few reasons. One, it's the first one we've done since right after the election. I'm back from my secret location hiatus <laughs> Trump talks that I was on. Um, and we're here at uh, Harvard Institute of Politics campaign manager's session. Um, we also have two great guests we're going to introduce in a second. And it's also the first episode of our new partnership with Westwood One, which we're announcing off the show in the next couple We've days. We've gone big time. I'm so excited. That's right. That's right. So we are really excited for all our listeners who've been with us from the beginning, plus our new uh, listeners and also brand new listeners that are maybe checking out the show for the first time. Um, we're happy to have all of you. So Kristen, why don't you tell us a little bit about where we are and who our guests are. So every four years, America elects uh, a president. And in the process of doing so, there are a ton of incredible stories that are generated. Um, a lot of history is made. And so Harvard University, for the last number of decades, uh, has been doing a project wherein the campaign managers from all of the presidential campaigns, um, victorious and, and not so victorious, are all invited to come and share their fresh memories of what happened. Um, this is not, uh, it's not necessarily supposed to be an exercise in punditry so much as the capturing of information and memories in as close to real time as possible for posterity. So every year, uh, every four years, a book comes out of this event where the campaign managers have given their take, their can as candid as possible, take on what happened. Um, and there have been really interesting revelations that have come out of previous years. You know, I remember uh, hearing about the, the Obama and Romney teams, you know, that saying, hey, we didn't understand why you ran that ad. You know, we were wondering what you were up to. And then this is the first time and maybe the only time campaigns get to interact on that level. And so we at the pollsters were pretty excited to come do a show here because there's so many great pollsters here who are a part of these campaigns who have stories to tell that I think are probably even more specific to our industry and that we hope our viewers, our listeners will be interested in hearing. So we're going to start. We have um, the pollsters from both the Trump and Clinton campaigns. We have Joel Benenson, who is, was the Clinton uh, campaign pollster. And we have Tony Fabrizio, who is one of the Trump pollsters. And Tony, I, our first question is for you. I've been known, Kristen, 
knows what the fastest way to get me angry is to say Trump and Sanders have a lot in common um, <laughs> because they're, they're not in a lot of ways that they're similar. But there is one way in which they're very similar. Both candidates talked quite obsessively about their own polling in a way that most candidates usually try to avoid. And at the same time, they both hired pollsters very late. They weren't quick to embrace polling the way other folks who run for office do. So – as the Trump first Trump campaign's uh, pollster, tell us what it was like to be hired by Trump. Did he did it reflect an openness, a newfound openness to polling? Walk us through that a little bit. Uh, I think it reflected a begrudging acceptance uh, more than anything else. I, I, I think uh, one of the things he is an avid consumer of polling. Don't make no mistake about it. I mean, he likes to know every poll, what the numbers say. And if they're good, he'll quote them. He'll quote them from the podium, <laughs> always quote them from the so podium. So we've seen, yeah. Exactly. In fact, <laughs> it got to the point where there was almost a race every day for people to get him the latest public numbers that were good. It, you know, it's you, keep, you feed the beast, so to speak. Um, but like anything else, I mean, don't forget, here is a guy who came from a business background with no political background. So to him, the most important number in a survey is the ballot. The rest of the numbers in there aren't necessarily – he doesn't necessarily delve into them. It's – and the fact that he showed throughout the campaign that he has a a pretty masterful grasp on marketing, he felt that he knew how he was going to move those numbers. So he understood that there were other applications for the data, for data analytics, for targeting, for, you know, TV ads, for things of that nature. But the fact is, is that he really was a bottom line type of guy. Am I up or am I down? In, in terms of things like, you know, analytics and such, there's been a lot of changing in the polling world in the last number of years. Joel, you were the pollster for Barack Obama in 2008, again in 2012, and now for the Clinton campaign in, in 2016. How have you seen the application of polling in campaigns evolve over the course of those uh, last three presidential cycles? Well, I mean, Kristen, as you know, and Margie, we should differentiate between analytics and polling. Analytics uses polls, but they're bare bones polls. They're not doing any diagnostics. They're not getting at any of the underlying dynamics like Tony just talked about, which I often say to clients, the horse race is the least important number in the polls. Mm -hmm. You really have to know what's going on beneath the surface. So I think what's changed in campaigns now is multiple buckets of data. Um, when we did President Obama's campaign in 2008, and we were not the first campaign to do this, but and analytics was barely scratching the surface then at the level. Big data was kind of percolating then and really getting incorporated. But we had multiple streams of data. So I did at that point all the messaging work in the overall battleground universe. We called them national polls, but they weren't really. You're doing an agglomeration of the, at some point, 14 states. And then you had separate pollsters who were expert in each state. So, uh, you know, for example, in 2008, we had um, in the primaries, we even brought in Anna Bennett, for example, to do Texas. You had John uh, – after the primaries, John Anzalone would poll in North Carolina and Florida and Michigan, states he knew well because you really needed to keep your finger on the pulse in those states. You had to develop your overall messaging for a broader electorate, but you also have to be able to know what's going on in each of those states. Uh, Tony, on the Trump team, I know you all had, despite, you know, Trump sort of saying, oh, I don't listen to polls, you actually had a pretty robust polling team with a lot of names that I think even folks in this room may have never heard of who are really pros in the field, yeah. Mike Bassley's, I mean, yep. Adam Geller. Tell Jeremy me a little Mark. bit about how you guys handled that working as a team together. Well, it, it, 
when I first came on, uh, one of the first commitments I got from Paul Manafort was that I get to select uh, the team that I wanted to select. Because I think it's very, very important, particularly when you're dealing with data, that everybody has the same mindset about it. Um, and if anything, it's gotten more challenging to be a pollster, uh, particularly a high-profile pollster, than it was, say, 20 years ago when I was Bob Dole's pollster for his presidential campaign. It was what it was, and that was it. There was no data analytics. There was there weren't 19 media polls every day contradicting you, and you have to explain to your candidate why you have him two down and they have him three up. You know, it's all of the all of that nonsense. But you wanted to have a group of people that had worked together, knew each other. And Basilis and I had worked together on Rick Perry and had a very good relationship in 2012. John McLaughlin is my former business partner, so obviously we knew each other. And uh, Adam Geller worked for John and I uh, when he first got into the business. So it was, and, and, and Kellyanne was already part of the team. Uh, and so, and Kellyanne and I have known each other since her days at Worthland. Back, you know, in the in the 90s when she was working for Bill McInturf and uh, Neil Newhouse at, at Worthland. So we all knew each other. We all had the same mindset. And um, we all had a meeting of the minds about the way we wanted to conduct the polling. And so it was easy from that standpoint. And there was no egos about, you know, saying, well, I don't know if I agree with you on that question. Maybe we should word it this way or, or you know, because a lot of times, as you know, uh, particularly now and particularly in this election, um, a lot of questions didn't matter. <laughs> I mean, some of the old measurements just didn't matter. I mean, you know, uh, you know, fave on fave, you know, right track, wrong track. I mean, you know, a lot of those things that were so yeah, predicting Tony, the that's best. Not, that's not just this election. I mean, I got to say, and I love Neil and Bill. I work with them a lot, you know. And Neil and I did this post-2012, and Neil said at that point, you know, he put up at one at Annenberg, you know, if you would have shown me that right track, wrong track number, that's the Dow Jones of presidential campaigns. Yeah. And I would have told you nobody could win, right. get reelected with those numbers. And I stood up and I said, Neil, I got to tell you, we saw the same number, but we were beating Romney in our first poll by three points with that number there. And yeah. our job is to figure out why. Yeah. What does the right track, wrong track number really mean? It is not a referendum on the incumbent. There are a lot of things wrong in yep. this election. It's very much about what was wrong in Washington. Yes. Economically, number one, and number two, Washington. One of the things we found early on when I first came on board, uh, and I kind of came on board uh, towards the ends of the primaries when Manafort got involved uh, and then was formally announced in early May, um, but one of the things that we found in the primaries that turned out to be very true in the general as well, although to a lesser extent, was the hidden angle. Uh, not so much hidden, but hidden from the elites. They, they really refused to accept the level of anger that voters had, particularly in the Republican primary. It was pretty deep, the level of anger. The other thing was is that because the right track, wrong track number had become really not a good predictor of what was going to happen because you had a number of Democrats saying the country was going in the wrong direction and they were for different reasons than the Republicans would say in the country was not going in the right direction. We started to develop a, uh, a series of questions, one in particular, to get at the type of change that they wanted in the country and whether or not they wanted to continue more of the path of an Obama-type presidency or where they wanted to go. And, you know, it was very easy to see early on that the more we made this about a change election, the less other things kind of mattered in their minds because there was a group of people that were just so set on burning it down, so to speak, 
um, that other things became less important to them in that in that in, through that lens, and so it was one of the metrics that we used. Frankly, our data analytics used uh, was to you know model um, against those people in states, and we found that you know in many states there were so many voters out there. Now the interesting thing is is that those change voters, uh, while there was a majority of them in every one of the battleground states that wanted to change direction, not all of them would ever vote for Donald Trump. In fact, there were a group of change voters that were voting for Hillary Clinton that wanted to go even further than Barack Obama had gone, which is, you know, your job is to find out what they really wanted. And that's one of the things we found out. But there was enough of those change voters on the table that it was possible for us to win the states we needed to win. And this was something that I, I, t- I talked about on the show last week where um, Adam Geller had done a, a brief little post on, mm. you know, hey, this is – we were seeing hints of the fact that Trump could win. And he didn't come out and say, oh, you know, our ballot test had Trump up by three no. or anything like that. No. What he said was that there were other questions that you were asking that gave hints. So this sort of leads me to the million-dollar question for both of you, which is were you surprised? And if so, how surprised were you? On the morning of November 9th? Uh, I went into the morning of November 9th. If you would have asked me to put odds, I would have said 55-45 she wins. Um, when I saw the exits at about 5.15 or 5.30, oh, man. <laughs> I wanted to commit suicide. They were I was like, so, how could so, we be so, so wrong? How could yeah. we? And, and we went into election. Our numbers had us tied in Florida. My only hesitation about Florida, being my home state, uh, was the early vote that they had posted, the early and absentee vote that they had posted. By the way, she outperformed Barack Obama in Orange and Miami-Dade counties and still lost the state. I was, I was on ABC, and I'm from Orange County, and I'm like looking at the numbers. I'm like, Hillary Clinton's it, it, holding it, it her numbers so in Orlando. Let's jump in here for yep. a second, yeah. though, here. Because let's all be candid. 55-45, I'll take it, Tony, if that's what you say. You could go into the room full of reporters here at Harvard today and ask how many of them were being told by the Trump campaign that they thought he was going to win. Not a person thought he was going to win. The, the no, challenge no, no, 55, is, you guys yeah, I understand, uh, 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 right. I mean, even on and TV, I, the Trump yeah, campaign was right, setting expectations, right? right? I mean, but, there, there you, you know, and I think exit polls, having gone through the primaries, which you weren't in, I mean, one of the things we knew from the primaries was the, the early exit polls are terribly off. Preach! Yeah. I say that on the show. And, Actually, and, on the that's the fastest way to get Kristen angry. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, you know, you could look at any number of states. I mean, we would be sitting there, we'd see the exits, and, you know, I remember seeing, well, it doesn't matter which states they were, but... Look, I, I think the point is is that um, there were certain dynamics at work here um, that do defy some typical polling questions. I think the challenge for pollsters, I always say at my firm, two things that I preach, and I know you want to talk about the election, but one is challenge all your assumptions. Challenge what you know, challenge what yep. you think you know. Um, and, um, you know, that's very important. You know, Einstein once said, uh, the only thing that gets in the way of my uh, learning is my education. And so you really got to take the shackles off and think differently about the numbers that are in front of you. And we also had it. Look, we tested a change question all the way through also. Uh, we need change in America. Is Donald Trump the right kind of change or wrong kind of change? And a majority always said the wrong kind of change. We tested that. But what they really wanted was to shake up Washington. Yep. And that was something that he could do. Now, I think there are other things when you look at the exit polls, and I know that there are in some of the states that are at work that, that are harder to measure. You know, in the six states – 
Like we also had it neck and neck in Florida at the end, I think, in our polling. Um, you know, there were some states that were more surprising than others. I think Wisconsin and Michigan probably and even Pennsylvania maybe. But they were all close. You know, they, we, this was not a blowout election. People were asking me in the last week, I said, you know, this will end up being somewhere between two and five points. Turns out I'm probably going to be right on the, on the vote numbers, but I'm going to be wrong on the electoral college. By, by the way, uh, he's, he's absolutely right. I mean, we had us up for North Carolina, so we thought North Carolina was good. Ohio, we stopped polling the last week because Ohio, we just consistently, nothing changed in Ohio for the last and you few were weeks winning. for us. Yeah, we were winning. You were winning. winning. Nothing we, changed. Ohio the and thing, Iowa, you were always we, going to win. We, we were down two in Nevada. We lost Nevada by two. I mean, so our numbers, we were down one in New Hampshire. We lost New Hampshire by one. I mean, so, so our it's numbers. it's really just like Wisconsin well, and Michigan. Yeah, no, no Wisconsin and Michigan. Michigan, we had us down a point and a half a Friday morning before the election. Oh. And we had been closing that whole week in the rolls, okay? Wisconsin was probably more of a surprise than Michigan was for us. But one of the things that occurred, and, and you know, I uh, – I try to avoid Twitter when possible, but I made the stupid mistake. <laughs> I was watching this debate go on between, I don't know, the, there's all experts on Twitter, as you know, that know everything about everything. They've won so many campaigns. Many of them yeah, are anonymous. Them yeah, many of them are anonymous, yes. I didn't, re- I didn't know what a troll was. I thought a troll was a little doll with long hair. I didn't know what a troll was until I went on Twitter. But I made the mistake of saying, because they were arguing about the methodologies of public polls. And look, I'm... I'm not a person that wants to go out and fight about every public poll. I think you live by the poll, you die by the poll. You have your own internal numbers. You deal with the numbers that you have. You either trust them or you don't trust them. And if you don't trust them, change. But they were talking about the turnout models. They they were basing their sample frame on. And I said, well, did it ever occur to anybody that maybe the turnout model isn't going to look like 2012 and maybe it looks more like 2014? Oh, my God. I got attacked viciously for for hours about what type of a retard would Donald Trump hire that thinks that. Well, P.S., by the way, Florida, Republicans were plus three from what they were in 2012. Ohio, plus eight. Pennsylvania, plus seven. You go back and you look at all of those states that we won, some of them barely, and you look at the shift in the partisan composition of the electorate, they all were much more like an off-year election than they Yeah, were. but some of that – first of all, well, if you look at the – first of all, to really – I've looked at the turnout going mm-hmm. back to 1992. When you look at the notion of whether the turnout was more like 2014 demographically, it's not. I'm not it is close to, Right. But you also know, Tony, that as you get closer to an election and people are deciding who they're voting for, right. and so by election day, you start sorting independents in particular. Democrats and Republicans don't. But independents, soft independents mm-hmm. will start saying, I, j- I just pulled the lever for Trump. I'm a Republican. Right. And but that did no the case the way they were going to vote. Just the it, way it, it was definitely last time. could have. It definitely right. could have. But there was less of a reason this time for independents to switch per se because of Trump than there was last time for Romney. There was more resistance to Trump. Well, he had a higher unfavorable rating than Romney ever had. I mean, you started out by saying Trump is a great marketer. I would disagree, only in the sense that the guy took a brand. And frankly, I think time will tell now whether being president resuscitates it. But boy, his numbers took a beating. And most of it was self-inflicted during this campaign to a way their 
Some people don't want to patronize his products. Some people don't want to go to his hotels. Well, I would argue that the marketing I'm talking about is his ability to dominate the field oh, that's, and dominate the conversation. Well, that's true. I mean, and, and use the media and understand yes. the media dynamic yes. uh, very differently. I, can I go back to something that Please. Tony said about public polls? Because I've, I've been uh, on, uh, on this issue for a long time. And I, I agree to- with Tony. If you have your own data, you live by your own data. But – I've said repeatedly, and I said it before this campaign, I said it in 2012. Keep in mind, by the way, everybody who's listening, that the pollsters on the national level were more right now in this election, as it turns out, than they were were in 2012 when they had Mitt Romney winning. But the problem is we have an epidemic of polls. And Tony's question about how they're modeling the electorate. Are they? Are they? You know, they think it's, it's... you know, you cannot touch, you know, party ID. And what I've said to them is, you're right. Of course, you don't just weigh the party identification. But if your party identification is or something is different demographically that you just have to keep digging to find out. But for those people who aren't in the weeds on polling, the problem is we have an epidemic of polling. The media is covering them all like tracking polls. I've said to every news organization, if you only reported on your own polls, you would be infinitely better off than you are when you're the New York Times or CNN. And then you want to report Gadfly University poll from, you know, uh, Bangor, Maine on a national poll. Like, you know nothing about what they're doing with their polls. So why are you reporting on it? You wouldn't do that with any other press release you get in your newsroom. And the other thing, too, is they, they don't always report the the method in which the poll is conducted. Um, but some, some out, but like the, the Huffington Post, if you don't have meet their basic disclosure requirements, they right. won't include you. I mean, but you that's the Huffington there. Post. You that's one sort. media outlet. But they, <laughs> but they all came to the same conclusion, which was it, there was this you know widespread confidence that Clinton was well, going to win. Now, is that I, the uh, aggregators I, modeling, or I, is that the polling? I'll, overall? I'll let them to answer for themselves. About? But I can tell you that we did an analysis in early October because all of the national polls. First of all, national polls in presidential elections are worthless unless you're looking to see major shifts in the electorate. Like Joel, we didn't do national polls. We did polling only in the states, and we did aggregated of the battleground states, and then we did state-specific. And I did the aggregates, and then we assigned the individual states to people who had experience in those states. And everybody, you stayed with the same state. You didn't change. So if you saw that over the course of time, you saw age groups changing and who's screening in and things like that, we let our model float, but we always had to wait back to something to look at as a standard benchmark for everybody. But one of the things that... um, that we saw in the data was that when um, when you looked at the data across all of the states, it was really good for us to get a sense of what was happening writ large. But there were things that were occurring so frequently in this race. I don't know about you, but we would witness, and particularly in our support, we would see our support dropped with Republicans 10 points in a week, a net 10 points in a week after he says something. And we'd see Gary Johnson's vote go up. We'd see the undecided with the Republicans. And so now what happened is, is that the horse race became totally different, even though we knew those voters were eventually come back. In fact, I came to term it the Trump slump, where we'd go into this slump 
And those voters were still there. They weren't going to Hillary Clinton. They were going to come back to us eventually. Well, so this leads me to my next question. So, you know, take the the ABC Washington Post poll, for instance, which at one point had Clinton up by double digits. Then within the course of like a week, suddenly had Trump up by plus one and kind of settled, I think, around Clinton plus four. Was the race ever actually that wobbly? No. No. Okay. No, no not at no. all. All right. <laughs> Look, I, I, I don't know how many presidentials you've done, Tony. This, this was my fourth one, right? And what happens is, and if you feel free to disagree, basically after the conventions, even going into the debates, they stay pretty stable. You'll see some variations. I think Tony's right. You would see movement in this one in particular with two candidates who both had unfavorable ratings underwater, third-party candidates who were capturing a bigger Big share shot. of the vote and sustaining Man, it. Yeah. I mean, really until the end, sustaining 8 to 11 points yep, together. together, which for us was a problem in that last week where you see the tightening up towards yep. the end post-Comey. We had two groups, Trump defectors and Hillary defectors, right? And we could see the variation among Republicans often had to do with Trump defectors, many of whom we believed would, would always come back. But we Ours were coming back after the third debate. We had actually solidified our lead for a period of days after that debate. Comey happens on that Friday, 11 days out, and that's when we see it go back. Our defectors leave. Their defectors get loyal. Yep. And that keeps moving and probably at the end tips the balance. We, um, we came to – well, one thing is you're absolutely right. Um, what we saw, the fluctuations – if you don't understand polling, you'd say, my God, the bottom fell out. <laughs> you would. To a, a layman, you'd look, you'd say, oh, my God, it's over. The race is over. The bottom fell out. But when you see Republicans going to undecided, if they haven't gone to Clinton by now and, you know, you're past the second debate, guess what? The, the chances are they're not going know. to Clinton mm-hmm. by this time. But, but more to the point is we modeled in early October because of polls like the ABC poll which there was a huge fight about how to fight them about this. And I'm like, guys, just leave it because watch what's going to happen. It's going to shift. Who was on the other side of that debate? uh, (laughs) Anyway, uh, but we modeled several different ways that we could lose the national popular vote by four points or more, slightly more than four points, and still get to 270 electoral votes. The way, because what was happening in this election that nobody was really taking into account was Donald Trump was going to underperform in states like Texas, Arizona, Georgia, states that deliver, you know, Republican numbers, you know what I'm saying? And he was going to underperform in states like California. Well, guess what? When you take them and you put them into a national model, you know what I'm saying? It doesn't matter if we win Texas by four points or 14 points. We still get the electoral votes. But it, nobody was factoring that in, and it was so focused on that national horse race. It was crazy. Well, I will, I will agree. Um, in fact, uh, I was doing these forums this week. I was in one in California and on the plane coming back because I'm really looking at the Electoral College and thinking, is the growth of our population now making that even more obsolete than it should be? And I know it's – you don't want to touch things, but I think some things you have to look at. So we, we had not had before 2000 a candidate – lose the popular vote, and uh, win the Electoral College since 1888, I believe, Rutherford B. Hayes against Grover Cleveland. And so I spent some time. Now we've had it twice in the last five elections, right? Marginally in in two, you know, 500,000 votes nationally. Now we're seeing it, and 500 votes in Florida, which mm-hmm. tipped it, 7,000 in New Hampshire, very small number shaping, whereas here we're seeing a bigger margin. New York has 29 electoral votes and 20 million people. 
uh, I must admit Romney, Donald Trump won eight states this cycle that add up to 29 electoral votes and they have 10 million people. Twice as many people in New York, half as many people, the same number of electoral votes. So, you know, as the, and, and if you go back to the founding of the country and the Electoral College, I won't go into the origins of it, which were designed to protect slave states in the South from getting overrun by the North. And by the way, if you read the Federalist Papers, which all Hamilton fans should do, uh, they all wanted to have elites make sure that a roiling populace didn't make the decision. But if you go back to the first Back to the Electoral College. The ratio of the largest state in electoral votes to the smallest was three to one. It is now close to 20 to one with California to all these states with three electoral votes. Right. And it might actually increase turnout if you had more, if every, every vote counted in the same way. By the way, I mean, you know, we're talking about all of this. And when you really put, when you really drill down on this election, if you change the vote in five counties, five counties, four in Florida, one in Michigan, we'd be having a totally opposite conversation right exactly. here. So for all the money that was spent, for all the effort that was made, literally four counties in Florida, one county in Michigan puts us at 261 electoral votes, makes Hillary Clinton the president. So remember that. That point about this election, ultimately, the White House being decided by such a relatively few number of votes is one that I've been trying to drive that message because for a long time I've been talking about the GOP's challenges with Latino voters, younger voters, and that we may have this longer term problem. And that's not a fashionable argument to make right now. Hey, we just won the White House and and Donald Trump, according to the exit polls, did better than Mitt Romney did with some of those groups. So to what extent do you think – the GOP makes a mistake by looking at this election victory and going great and not – do you think there are any changes that the GOP largely still should be considering despite I just, winning? I was just on the the panel, the primary panel, and one of the things I said is, is that um, Donald Trump is really a post-ideological yeah. candidate. Um, he's the first Republican nominee who has not been put through the paces of every previous nominee – on being ideologically pure for the party. Um, And yes, he checked some boxes that are important to the base of the Republican Party, but he certainly didn't check every box. And in fact, challenged the orthodoxy of what the elites in the Republican Party think are important. Free trade, uh, you know, immigration, uh, you know, you, you, you clearly had the Gang of Eight and all these other things. And so I think what you're going to see is, is he is a personality-driven candidate. And those are very rare. He didn't, he wasn't an organizational candidate, you know what I'm saying? And yes, he had some issues, but it was really the a personality-driven phenomenon more than anything else. And I think what you're going to see is, I think it's going to royal, to steal a word from my friend Joel, uh, what the Republican Party stands for and what it does over the next several years. Because he is not at all beholden mm-hmm. to any of them. And I will tell you, he is not going to act like he's beholden to any of them. Uh, so I, I think people are in for a surprise when it comes to, in terms of, you know, 
if Mitt Romney had been the nominee and Mitt Romney had won, you know, it, it, it'd be much different than you're going to see with Donald Trump. So, now, what about the similar yeah. Democratic question, right? Do we wait for – embrace the diversity and simply wait for demographics to catch up or the sort of Tim Ryan argument de- that we need to be reaching out to more white working class Dem- voters? Demographics are not destiny. I wrote that in an op-ed after the 2012 election and they won't be. But they are not unimportant either. So I would quote a, a Republican, former governor, Tim Pawlenty of Minnesota, the day before the election, who said whether Trump wins or loses, the Republican Party is going to have to do some soul searching uh, after this. I think what Tony described is accurate about Trump and and how he defies ideology. And I'm not saying they do and we don't. What I mean, and I, because I agree, both parties have to reevaluate now. I think it is untenable for the Republican Party. Tony's example about the five counties is really a great one. It's untenable to keep losing presidential elections. So you've lost the popular vote six out of seven times. As a party, you've got to say, there's something happening in this country that we're going to have to adjust to. For us, we're going to have to say, hey, wait a second, we've got to go back into states where. You know, we have not been uh, doing as much as we should have. We cannot cede so many state houses. We cannot cede so many state legislatures. There are a lot of reasons for it, both from a governing point of view, but from a political point of view. When we cede those states, you wind up with more restrictive voting laws, things like, you know, and I'm I'm not going to get into that debate here, but they have an impact. Um, and you just have to, you've got to show people you want to earn their votes no matter where they are. Now, does that mean we're going to ever play in all 50 states? Probably not. But you're going to have to, both parties are going to have to figure out what it means for them to really broaden their reach, not their base of support, but their reach. You don't win elections by winning a base election. Donald Trump didn't win a base election. Barack Obama didn't win base elections. They win if they do a better job of winning the middle. And if you go back and look at this election, and look at the exit polls. The biggest number – people ask me, what am I going to be looking for in the exit polls when they come in? I said moderates. If we win moderates by a certain amount, we'll win the election. And if we don't – and we did not win moderates by enough. Barack Obama, if you look at his 2012 win in Romney versus Bush's win over Kerry in 2004, three-quarters of the difference in the win and defeat came from his margin with moderate voters. So let's talk a little bit about the role of a pollster being a partisan advocate in addition to someone who's data-driven, right? So a quote we've read about you that we love that we've joked about on the show a few times is someone said, he's the kind of guy, if he was a doctor, he'd tell you you're going to die. (laughs) So did you ever have to tell That's a safe bet. Who isn't going to die, Tony? (laughs) Did you ever tell Donald Trump that he was going to die? No, I never told him that. I, I... not to reveal any yeah. uh, confidential conversations, but um, when he asked the question, um, I always give him a straight answer. I I do not. I'm not. I don't believe my job is to sugarcoat bad things. Now, my job isn't to say you're going to die tomorrow, and you you know. My job is to just tell the facts and just the facts. And to offer a solution to those facts, not just to tell the facts. It's to say you're going to die unless you start eating more broccoli. Well, or, you know, in this case, these are the things I think we need to do to make this situation better. Um, I think, though, that there are, uh, I think there are people who, you know, react better to those type of conversations (laughs) than others. And I think it's fair to say he's like any other successful person or most successful people I've ever worked for. And I've worked for a number of very wealthy businessmen who have run for office. And lots of times they don't react well to things that don't fit into what they view the world to be. 
Um, but those are the type of people that you need to be stronger with and be forceful with to make your point because those are the type of people who ultimately won't listen to you if you don't if you're not forceful. It seems as though in the discussion earlier this morning when folks were talking about Hillary Clinton, that it's almost as though she, I can imagine her being the opposite way, though, that that I think it was Jennifer Palmieri who was saying that Hillary Clinton always sort of had a sense of like, what are the five things that can come and get give it to me? Straight that, like, talk. Like, like more of the like, like pest, like uh, if, if I'm reading too much into what I heard this morning, I, I think it, it's not pessimism. It's 30 years of experience, the vicissitudes of politics when going up and down and up and down. Down, you know, David Axelrod uh, is a, is a dear friend of mine. I, I was at his institute the other night, and David, during the course of our discussion, when questions were coming at me, said to said to the audience, he always says, you know, when you you're never as smart as you look when you win, and you're never as dumb as you look when you lose. Yeah, um, but but to, I think Tony and I are on the same page here. Your job as a pollster is to be. First of all, strategic people. We're not just good pollsters or not just people who run numbers and tell you what the numbers are. You have to, I always say, you've got to explain the why before the what. The what is less important, just like the horse race being less important. And I think you've got to recognize dynamics and figure out how to strategize around them, through them, in order to develop a winning strategy and a winning coalition to get you there. Look, I've delivered bad news to candidates. I have told candidates they're going to lose. There have been very few times where I said to people, I can't tell you whether you're going to win or lose. Uh, the only time it really ever happened to me, by the way, it was also with a third-party candidate. And where, when your future is dependent on someone other than yourself or your opponent, you've got this third variable of yeah. a person who's not going to win. It just screws things up in a way that compromises the forecasting a bit. I, I think you've got to be honest. You've always got to be an honest broker with the numbers. And that's why that little phrase I talked about challenging assumptions is important. And, you know, when Tony's talking about those numbers, you know, we see our numbers with Republicans go up as high one point, I think, in the battleground universe to 12 percent in a poll. And yeah. I'm like, we are never going to end up with 12 percent of Republicans. Just not going to happen. Absolutely. And and uh, look, I think at some level, um, yeah, this was an incredible – I have done – this is my – fifth presidential election, starting back with Dole. And, well, actually, I worked for Pat Buchanan in 1992, if you could imagine that. Um, but I have never seen the dynamics like this play out in a statewide race. Maybe you have. Uh, certainly not in a presidential race. What do you mean, like, like this? So First of all, it's not very often that you find both candidates – with their images so deeply underwater. Um, I mean, at one point in time, we had, I don't know about you, we had a group of voters that were unfavorable to both that was probably like 23% of the electorate. I mean, that's that's huge. Yeah, that's we, like unheard of. <laughs> we had, on one of our Walmart moms focus groups, somebody said it's like trying to decide which arm to cut off or between, <laughs> a, uh, what was it, a, you know, a psychopath and, you know, somebody else. And and people are like, oh, that's exactly how I feel. I mean, it was a universal feeling. It, it was, it was. And the interesting thing is, is that, it, and I'm sure he saw it in the qualitative research as we saw it in the qualitative research as well as the quantitative research, is that. Voters were just so put off by both of them at some level for different reasons that it almost was how the race ended up was going to determine almost who was going to win. Because, as you pointed out, when they came out of the third debate, 
the third debate really, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it was, we saw the numbers kind of level off for us. And then when the Comey letter came out, what happened is the dynamic changed in the race again and it refocused. So we had a group of voters that we were following the whole election. And we call, I called them the Trump targets. We called them the Trump targets. And these were voters who wanted to change the direction of the country, said the country was heading the wrong track, were not hardcore libs, hardcore dems. They weren't hardcore Hillary voters, none of that. And depending on the state, and there were several other factors that went into it, depending on the state, there was between 6 and 12% of the vote that came into that category. And who was winning those voters in almost every state? Gary Johnson, if he was on the ballot. He was winning those voters. Who was coming in second with those voters? Hillary Clinton in almost every state. He'd be like, what are we going to do to get those voters back? But when we weren't talking about change or Washington, they were focused on other things. And what we saw in the final week, particularly after the Comey letter, that change message really started to crystallize. And guess what? He also started to focus on it and really focus on it with the drain the swamp stuff and the change messaging. And it just got... You know what I'm saying? It just became more crystallized, and we saw that group shrink, 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 shrink. And, you know, when you see that type of thing happening, you hold your breath because we had seen the bottom fall out on this before. Because when the, he came back out and said the Friday before, whatever it was, hey, guys, guess what? Nothing here. You know what I'm saying? Then you didn't know if it goes back the other way again. It was Where just he crazy. came out the Sunday before. Right, right. Sorry. And. That did not help us either because it just put it back into the conversation again. So I know both of you have to head over to the final session, which is going to be the one where the campaign folks from both of the the general election candidates sit down and hash out everything that happened. So I think our last question is – this has been an election that I think has really done some damage to the the image of the polling industry. Fairly or unfairly, we can debate that. But I mean, I know I go home for Thanksgiving and the first thing my sister, you know, my, I, I told him I'd give him a shout out. Uh, Mac, I, I told you I'd give you a shout out. First thing he says is like, so those polls, huh? You know, and as the pollster, it's like you, I've, I've now got to defend my industry constantly. What do you think changes in the polling industry now moving forward? Well, I... Among professional political pollsters, I, we always need to keep on innovating and questioning and looking for different ways. I will tell you, we did a ton of online research in this election. I mean, it's getting better. And for certain types of research, it's perfectly fine to do. I mean, you know what I'm saying? And so I, I think we always have to keep on looking at different models and try to do it. I will tell you that I would be 100% in favor if there were a group out there that policed media polls. Because the media polls are oftentimes the worst and the university polls. I mean, some of them, you know, we don't even know what the demographics are. So you can't have a conversation about what the poll is. And you just get thrust upon you like, why does this poll say it's 10 points? Why does that I mean, we're all very conscious about when we release a poll. First of all, tell me the last time you saw a Benenson poll or a Fabrizio poll out there publicly. But when we do, this is our name on the line. You know what I'm saying? We're we're saying that we think that this is what this is going to look like. And we know the consequences are that it affects our reputation. It's almost like the rest of these people are doing. There's no effect on the rep. There's no, you know what I'm saying? APOR doesn't police them. You know what I'm saying? So I wish there was a group out there that did because I think that's where the real problem is. It's not with us. 
listen, I, I agree with Tony. I think, you know, we started to use online more. We've been looking at techniques for several years doing it. We didn't, you know, rely on it. So I was going to say, I think one of the things you're going to do is more uh, uh, multimodal polling, really using multiple ways of doing it, every technique available to you, more checks on yourself. You know, and it is interesting. I mean, I don't want to go off on the public polls again, but in one panel in California, a woman stood up and said, well, you know, I know there was a lot of talk about this USCLA Times poll, but it turned out to be right at the end. And I felt bad. I said to the woman, I'm sorry, ma'am, but you're wrong. Their last poll had in the, it was a national poll, and it had Donald Trump winning by three points. As of today, he's losing by 1.9. That's 4.9 points off. That's not right. So I think we're going to have to be vigilant about using newer means and testing them. Yes. Uh, I think the last point, though, I think it's not somebody else to police it. I think the media has to police their use of polling because you can't report on all of these like they're tracking polls, like they're all valid. Stick to your own organization's polls. Uh, and live and die by those and stop obsessing about it every f- every day. <laughs> I, I was with that word you were going to yeah. use. But, but still I listen to the pollsters. But you should still listen to the pollsters. You can be obsessed enough to listen yeah. to our show every week. Well, Tony, Joel, thank you so much for joining us <laughs> here no on this episode. Thanks, you guys. That was great. Thank you for having us. So, Margie, as, as they're packing up and, and heading over to their big session, any final thoughts from you now that you've had sort of two and a half, three weeks or so to decompress, think through this? I already gave, I, I spilled my feelings to my laptop last week in our episode. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, and I was thinking about it a, a little bit on the plane today, and, and I feel, well, I mean, there's still quite a few theories out there in terms of why there's, thank you guys so much, why there's this sense that the polling was a miss. You know, one is it wasn't as much of a miss, perhaps, as people want to think that it is, but still, ultimately, they're judging polling based on the final number. So there's still these various theories, and Kristen, you explained them very well in the last episode. We talked about some of them also in the episode right after the election, and there have been articles. There's no answer yet. You know, we want a satisfying answer to the polling miss, just like we wanted a satisfying answer to who was going to win. We wanted to know. I feel who like was people, win. people get really frustrated with me when they ask, like, well, what went wrong with the polls? And I'm like, we don't know yet. Don't and know they're yet. like, why wouldn't you know? And I'm like, well, because voter files don't come out in a lot of states for quite a while. And right. And the, current, the census data won't be out for, I mean, like all of these. Oh, which on our next show, by the way, I got a really extensive, well thought through explanation of all of the things I got wrong in the last episode about the American National Election Excellent. Study. Excellent. Um, so stay tuned for that. That's We're, good. Uh, We're like all about transparency. Full, all about transparency. Um, so, I mean, but I think that, you know, just like you heard these guys talk so in detail about all the behind-the-scenes work that they explored, both to project what was happening, to look at different demographic groups, to explore different types of questioning. You know, you just don't see that even in – you know, even in the the great modeling done by the various forecasters, even in the very extensive polling, honestly, that the media outlets do, they do very long polls, they release tons of stuff, but ultimately what the media puts out and what people want to see is the score, just like Neil Newhouse said on our show a year yeah. ago. The game is always on. You can just tune in anytime and watch the score when voters' views are far more complicated. It's not simply f- for them. You know, I'm for Trump today. I'm from Clinton tomorrow. They have a lot more going on. So, you know, I, I guess there isn't a pat answer there other than we need to think a little bit more carefully and thoughtfully about how we view the climate as opposed to just, you know, looking at the score only or sort of making something up without data. But nonetheless, I do think ultimately people are going to want to look at the, you know, look at polling and say, 
why it was the number not what we thought it was going to be. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't think we have the right answer to that other than, you know, people the, – with a quote from um, someone from APOR, Cliff Zuckin, we're asking poles to measure ounces when they're designed to measure pounds. So – you know, and listening to these guys, it sounds like they didn't have, you know, it wasn't, you know, there's uncertainty even the last week, even if you're studying the race as closely as they have been. Yeah, people, it's it's now, and and I, th- I really hope that in a future week we can get one of our friends on who does the forecasting stuff to talk about, you know, people want this like exact, you've called the race. Oh, you, you said that Clinton was going to win. You said right. that Trump was going to win because this probabilistic thinking is a little harder to wrap your mind around. Somebody comes out and says... Yeah, you know, like if I had gone on TV and said, hey, you know, I give Trump a 45% chance of winning, Clinton 55% chance. Like that's not a satisfying answer. Everybody wants the black and white, like tell us exactly how many electoral votes you We're going to have to wait, but, you know, you just you know, we don't know yet. Yeah, and, and so being in the polling field, people, I think people think like it's our job to say, oh, yes, we know that so-and-so will win and this is the states that they will win. And explaining to people that precisely because we deal in the world of – science and data and all of this stuff, that's why we're so uncertain. Right. Is like, it's, that's kind of a weird concept. What what we did, what polling as an industry did get right, all of the public polling, is that there was a lot of anger, as Tony discussed. There was a lot of anger toward Washington. That dysfunction of Washington was as much of a problem for people as the economy itself. There was this sense of economic insecurity. There was inflamed racial uh, tensions, you know, across the board. Um, There was worry, you know, there was a sense that people wanted something different, some sort of change from from how things have been going. So all those trends, I think, were picked up very well by all the public polling and discussed accurately and consistently across different outlets by folks who study polling and talk about polling a lot like we do. Um, so that piece, I think, we got right. But but I do think, I mean, so sitting in these sessions, again, which as soon as this show is out, all of the other audio from these sessions here at Harvard will come out. You know, at one point, one of the Trump campaign folks in the afternoon session discussing the primary, they said, you know, Donald Trump didn't need focus groups because he had rallies, that he was using his rallies to kind of like dial test his message. And stuff like that, on the one hand, I'm like, well, hey, more power to him. On the other hand, stuff like that drives me nuts because I worry that everybody's going to think they can just do that. Right. That, that every there, there was a line last night. I forget who said it in the session where they said everybody's going to be trying to replicate what Donald Trump did. Oh, I don't need polls. Oh, I can just focus group this stuff by seeing who applauds at a rally. And I don't know that I don't know that it works. Right. For everyone. I don't even know if it worked for Donald Trump so much as, again, five counties went the right way. Right. So. Right. Well, that's our show for today. We're so excited that folks could come join us in person and welcome new listeners wherever you are, your car or at the gym or um, someplace, you know, someplace exciting, a beach locale. Like well, and throughout the week, you can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters. Individually, we're at Margie O'Mero and at K. Soltis Anderson. You can find us online at www.thepolsters.com. We also post on Facebook throughout the week, the sorts of things that we might be talking about on upcoming shows, please make sure write a review of our show. We love to hear from you. Send us notes, feedback, corrections. We love all of it. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to the Harvard Institute of Politics for hosting us here. We'll talk to you all next week.